Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. Before I get to the episode, I have some disappointing news to share. Unfortunately, some awful up-to-no-good person, or persons in this case because it was a very sophisticated scam, decided to hack into the Instagram account associated with the podcast, which was Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram, but now I have zero access to it with little to no hope in sight of regaining that access. At first, y'all, I was so, so sad and incredibly distraught. But you know what? I'm choosing to not let this get me down. I mean, obviously, I have bigger things to worry about right now in life than that. So as they say, I'm going to (laughs) try to let bygones be bygones, and I'm going to plow forward full steam ahead. I guess in a way, I can consider it a fresh start for the podcast. I mean, I'm trying to look at it through a positive light. So after careful thought and consideration and seeking some advice from some amazing fellow podcasters, I've decided to simply switch everything over on Instagram to my personal account, at Nicole K. Lynn. Because by golly, it is my podcast, damn it. (laughs) And I refuse to let anyone try to take control over it for some sleazy, icky scam. Plus, I would love to share what's going on in my life with all of you through my personal account because y'all are just truly amazing, dedicated listeners who have helped make the podcast what it is and what it has become. But I will also continue to post for the podcast on my personal Instagram. So everything you saw on the old Instagram account for Campus Crime Chronicles, you can now see it on my personal page instead. So please unfollow whatever loser or losers decided to hack me. And please report the profile as fraudulent to Instagram. I feel like that's the only way we're really going to be able to get it taken down for good. Then... Do go follow my personal account at Nicole Kaylin. That's K A L Y N N. So do it right now before you forget. All right, so now that that is out of the way, this episode is rated a five. During Thanksgiving break in the fall of 1969, 22-year-old Betsy Ardsma returned early to the campus of Penn State University to finish an important English project. Shortly after Betsy and her roommate walked to the library on campus, the sound of falling books and bookshelves startled those in the building. As people rushed to the middle of the library to see what had happened, Betsy was found lying under the pile of books that had crashed to the floor. 
She was quickly taken to the campus hospital, but ultimately succumbed to her injury, a single stab wound that had pierced her chest. This episode is titled, Attacked in the Stacks, the Murder of Betsy Ardsma. So without further ado, let's get started. Ardsma was originally from Holland, Michigan, but she enrolled in Penn State's graduate English program primarily to remain close to her boyfriend, David Wright, who had been accepted into Penn State's College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Betsy was described as incredibly pretty and petite, and her friends recalled how kind and sensitive of a person she was. She had even considered joining the Peace Corps at one point, before she ultimately decided to continue her education instead and work on her master's degree. Her boyfriend at the time, David, said, quote, She was a very brilliant person, extremely smart, good sense of humor, just a wonderful person. End quote. During the Thanksgiving break in November of 1969, Betsy was visiting David and Hershey for the holiday, but she decided to head back early to Penn State's main campus and State College. So on the Friday after Thanksgiving, she caught a bus back to campus so she could speak to one of her professors and finish an important assignment. So the next day after heading back to campus, Betsy left her dorm room around 4 p.m. and headed to the library with one of her roommates. She briefly stopped to see one of her professors before she continued on to level two of the Patti Library to an area called the Stacks. A 2010 article by Gil Smart for Lancaster Online described this area of the library as a cramped and isolated space equipped with long rows of books and low ceilings. Then, sometime between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m., Betsy collapsed, pulling pounds of books on top of herself. While a few people reported hearing a single scream, most witnesses only heard the sound of falling books crashing to the ground. But a man appearing to quickly leave the area told one witness, quote, somebody better help that girl, end quote. That man, however, was never found or identified. As people in the library rushed over to the pile of books to see what exactly had just happened, they discovered Betsy lying on the ground, not moving. But y'all, at the time, not one person in that library realized Betsy had actually been stabbed, let alone murdered. You see, she was wearing a red dress and she was bleeding internally into her lungs, so there was no visible blood at the scene. Mike Simmers, a young police trooper in 1969 who was working undercover on campus while also attending college, was one of the first people to respond to the scene. He told NBC News, quote, When I got the call that day, it was for a medical emergency. It was believed she had fainted or had a seizure. I had no idea it was murder. No one did. It wasn't until she was taken to the campus medical center that she was declared dead at 5.19 p.m. A doctor discovered a single knife wound to her left breast and deep bruising around the entry point. The wound was three inches deep and one inch wide, which hit her pulmonary artery and caused her lungs to fill up with blood. So not only did this explain the lack of blood at the scene in the library, but it also indicated that her killer struck her with very powerful force. However, no weapon was ever found, not at the scene or anywhere. 
Simmers recalled that once he realized he was dealing with a murder, he knew he needed to bring in backup to help process the crime scene. Until that point, he normally dealt with drug busts on campus and crowd control during anti-Vietnam War protests. So he called the state police barracks, which was located just eight miles from campus, and they made their way back to the library. But y'all, when they returned, not one piece of evidence was left intact. The books had already been reshelved and the floor had been mopped. Plus, after it had been cleaned, students were permitted to walk through the area again and no witnesses were still around to really answer any questions. It was like nothing had happened at all and police were left scratching their heads on where to begin. So they ended up bringing in an expert to use an ultraviolet light at the scene to try and detect bodily fluids. And when they did that, the whole area lit up like a Christmas tree. The area was covered in semen. But that didn't necessarily help them with the murder case. Because, you see, most of the samples appeared to be days old or even older than that. So, you know how, like on movies and TV shows, there's always an isolated place in the library where students go to make out and, you know, like have secret rendezvous? Well, in 1969 at Penn State, the Stacks was a real-life version of that. The Stacks was also an area of the library where porn magazines were often stashed. So I think y'all get my drift. Anyway, they also collected at the scene a spray of tiny blood droplets, which law enforcement said looked like someone, perhaps Betsy's killer, had flicked their hands. And the blood found did in fact match Betsy's blood type. However, at the time, obviously DNA was not available, so there wasn't sufficient evidence collected that could solve the case. According to Simmers, between 30 and 40 state police troopers worked Betsy's case, and they interviewed hundreds of students and followed several leads around the country. This included leads in both Pennsylvania and her home state of Michigan. Simmers said that over the years, they did have a couple of people who they believed could have been the suspect, but there was never enough evidence to make any arrests. One of those suspect leads came from a police sketch of the man who at least one witness saw leaving the scene, if you remember me saying that. But again, that was another dead end. Or was it? So put a pin in that because I will come back around to the sketch. Now, although her murder has never been solved, oh, did I fail to mention that? Because yeah, it has never been solved in over 50 years. But even though they have never made an arrest, there have been a few theories floating around, but most of them have been ruled out. For example, some speculated that Betsy was another victim of Ted Bundy, the infamous serial killer, because I guess he was at Temple University in kind of in the same area around the time of the incident. But law enforcement did not see any type of correlation between Betsy's single stabbing and the Bundy murders. Another theory is that Betsy may have interrupted one of the many sexual trysts occurring in the library, specifically between two men, and in order to keep her silent, they stabbed and killed her. But law enforcement officials are pretty certain that the killer was someone close to Betsy, someone she knew well, and that someone, they think, was a man whose romantic advances had been rejected by Betsy. State Trooper Lee Barrows told Lancaster Online, quote, There was no struggle. She didn't run. I think that she was familiar with the killer, that she recognized him, and that she was not afraid of him, end quote. And Simmers, you know, the original responding officer, said, quote, 
Everyone either wanted to be her friend or wanted to date her, but she was focused on her schooling and she didn't entertain the boys who had crushes on her, end quote. So that leads us to a guy who Betsy had been casually dating for a short while. That is, before she and her boyfriend, David, began seeing each other exclusively. And that is a man by the name of Richard Hefner. According to a book by author David DeCock titled Murdered in the Stacks, Penn State, Betsy Ardsma, and the Killer Who Got Away, Hefner was one of many who had a crush on Betsy and knew her well. At the time, in 1969, Hefner also was a Penn State graduate student pursuing his doctorate in geology. Apparently, Hefner and Betsy went on a few dates, but she ultimately decided she wanted to just remain friends with him. And naturally, she rejected any further romantic advances from Hefner. According to Lancaster Online, Hefner was one of 5,000 individuals interviewed about the crime. Simmer said that Hefner told police in his interview that he was not at the library that night and that he didn't even know about Betsy's murder until days later. So I guess they were just like, oh, okay, check him off the list then because that's what he says. Because... Sergeant George H. Keebler, who oversaw the investigation for the first 14 years, said he knew of Hefner, but also said that Hefner was never considered to be in their quote-unquote suspect category, and he has never officially been named as a suspect by police. But listen to this. Hefner allegedly actually knew about Betsy's murder much sooner than what he told police. You see, another author a professor at Penn State by the name of Sasha Skuchek, who has written several articles about the case for State College Magazine, claims that he has spoken with one of Hefner's former college professors. And the professor recalled that the very day of the murder, Hefner showed up to the professor's home just hours after it happened. Apparently, Hefner was acting very distraught and weird, and he asked, quote-unquote, have you seen the papers? Referring to Betsy's attack and murder. But here's the thing. The newspapers hadn't yet covered the murder or reported anything, like, at all. So how would he know that? And what's more, after Hefner left, the professor felt that Hefner was acting so strangely that he discussed with his wife the possibility of Hefner being involved with the crime. However, for some reason, the professor never reported that incident to the police. So... Who exactly is Richard Hefner? Could he really be responsible for this crime that over 53 years later has remained unsolved? Well, let's go through this guy's history and you can decide. Gil Smart for Lancaster Online reported that Hefner was described as strikingly intelligent. After he received his PhD from Penn State, he became a geologist and professor of geology at the University of South Carolina, and he was listed as who's who in America in 1975 through 1976. Around that same time, the University of Southern California had offered him a teaching job, as well as the position of curator at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles. But y'all, his professional academic career crashed and burned in August of 1975, according to the Lancaster Online. Why? Well, because he was arrested and charged with involuntary deviant sexual intercourse and corrupting the morals of a 12-year-old boy. So apparently, Hefner had a side gig he ran out of his garage where he would assemble rock boxes, which included shipments of rocks and minerals that Hefner would sell to the Smithsonian Institute. 
Well, to assemble the rocks, Hefner would wrangle kids in the neighborhood to help him. And this child was one of them. NBC News reported that the case went to a jury trial on January 27, 1976, but it ended in a mistrial on February 3rd because the jury was unable to reach a verdict. However, during the trial, the judge did cite Hefner for contempt of court for blurting out that he had passed a polygraph after the judge had ruled the test was inadmissible. For that, the judge fined him $500 and sentenced him to a month in county jail. But he only ended up serving two weeks before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ordered him to be released pending an appeal of the contempt citation. And lo and behold, he won that appeal. Then, in March of 1979, the state Supreme Court ruled that he could not be tried again because it would violate his constitutional protection against double jeopardy. You know, being tried for the same crime twice. So, his record at that point was expunged. But y'all, his time in court had only just begun, and this dude spent his last 20 years in and out of courtrooms filing lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Some intended to clear his name, and some intended to harass his enemies, according to Lancaster Online. For example, he set out to sue virtually everyone involved with the court case regarding the 12-year-old juvenile. This included police officers, the county, the city, the court reporter, and even his very own defense attorney, George Werner, who just happened to be the attorney who defended the city and city police department in the federal cases that Hefner pursued. Y'all, this guy sounds so psychotic. Werner, the lawyer, said that the lawsuits all alleged that his civil rights had been violated, which were all thrown out by a really smart judge. However, Hefner also sued the Natural History Museum in California after they refused to hire him due to his legal allegations. In that case, though, he was awarded nearly $300,000 in damages. And I bet it doesn't surprise you that this guy, in most cases, also acted as his own lawyer. Uh, yeah, he was one of those. And in one of the depositions, he even leapt across the table and started outright wrestling with a witness who was being deposed. But wait, that's not all. In 1981, Hefner was cited with disorderly conduct for causing a disturbance in the lobby of Lancaster newspapers. Then, in 1994, he was charged with aggravated assault, resisting arrest, assaulting a police officer, hindering apprehension, and disorderly conduct for allegedly fighting with officers and trying to keep them out of his house. Four years later, in 1998, he was also convicted of assaulting a Delaware woman after an argument ensued in the parking lot of a liquor store. According to court documents, the woman saw a dog all by itself in a shopping cart and thought it had been abandoned, so she went toward it. But Hefner intervened and told the woman that the dog was his. Well, this led to a conflict that escalated quickly, but when the woman tried to just walk away and get inside her car, Hefner struck the door of her vehicle with a glass bottle. The woman then tried to follow Hefner's vehicle so she could report his license plate to the police, which is something I would have definitely done too. But at some point, Hefner stopped his car, got out of it, and then grabbed the woman by the neck and literally yanked her out of her car. He then proceeded to kick and punch her, ultimately dislocating her jaw and loosening several of her teeth. But wait, 
Instead of admitting any wrongdoing, he attempted to file a lawsuit in federal court alleging that the woman assaulted him. Thankfully, that case was thrown out, and the judge even said that the complaint was borderline frivolous. And aside from the court stuff, this dude sounds like he was a complete nightmare. Like they could probably do a Fear Thy Neighbor episode over him. In his 2010 article for Lancaster Online, Gil Smart said that Hefner was, quote, a terror, a neighbor who enraged those who lived near him in the 200 block of Nevin Street in Lancaster with his slovenly ways and vindictive behavior, end quote. For starters, his yard was filled with large metal drums and tarps covering piles and piles of rocks. His lawn also looked like a salvage yard because of the multiple vehicles he left sitting around in disrepair. Smart reported that Hefner's neighbors would constantly complain to the city officials, but rarely to his face because they were downright afraid of him. One neighbor even recalled, quote, If he found out you called the city, he would terrorize you, end quote. For example, he would spread trash across neighbors' front porches, and he even took a knife to another neighbor's tire. And one time, his dog pooped on another neighbor's lawn. When that neighbor pulled up to his yard to confront him about it, things took a very dark turn. According to the neighbor, quote, He picked it up with his hands and threw it through the car window. He was very scary, very threatening, end quote. Hefner continued to terrorize his neighbors and file lawsuits until he eventually died in 2002 at the age of 58 at a Las Vegas hospital. But before I end the episode, I do want to circle back around to the police sketch of one of the potential suspects. You know, the one I mentioned earlier, whom a witness in the library saw possibly fleeing the area. Well, that sketch, in my opinion, definitely resembles Hefner, and according to a Penn State student's blog for a class project, she thinks so too. In her blog, the student placed the sketch of the potential suspect and a picture of Hefner side by side, and the resemblance is most definitely there, especially the hair. So I will be sure to post that picture to my social media so you guys can see it too. Over the years, the murder of Betsy Ardsma has become a fading memory to friends and family. In fact, Betsy's living family members have chosen to move on with their lives, and they no longer speak publicly about her or the tragedy that took her life. And at Penn State, the crime has turned into somewhat of a myth, as generations of students have heard about the girl in the stacks, and others have even said that her ghost haunts that section of the library to this day. But Mike Simmers, the original responding officer, said that he still thinks about the case, Every single day, especially because at the time of the murder, Simmers was only 22 years old, the same age as Betsy when she died. Simmers told NBC News, quote, It's a case that was so horrific. It's one that sticks to me to this day. It's been decades, but I'm hoping it can still be solved. For her family, for Betsy. End quote. And law enforcement says her case is still very much open and active. Pennsylvania State Trooper Tyler J. Groob said, quote, Throughout the years, there have been several persons of interest developed, but none that have been labeled as a suspect. Any and all information that comes into the Pennsylvania State Police is promptly followed up and investigated thoroughly. End quote. So, if you have any information at all about Betsy Ardsma's case, please call the Pennsylvania State Police at 717 783 5599. 
Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 49. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can now find me at Nicole K. Lynn on Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-K-A-L-Y-N-N on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. And be sure to check out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories. Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.